Well, good morning. We're continuing a series that started long ago now in Matthew's Gospel, and we're following through accounts of what Jesus said and Jesus did. And the topic that we're looking at today is the topic of forgiveness. And, and just very interestingly, two events in the past fortnight have brought issues of forgiveness into the public arena. The death of Martin McGuinness, the former IRA general and latter-day peacemaker in Northern Ireland, and then the terrorist attack at Westminster involving wanton haphazard killing and maiming of passers-by and a law enforcement officer at the political heart of our nation. I wonder how you reacted to those incidents. The harshest possible response to McGuinness's death came from Norman Tebbit, whose wife was disabled in an IRA bomb attack on a Brighton hotel in the 80s. And uh, Tebbit blamed Martin McGuinness for what happened to his wife and what nearly took out the whole conservative cabinet. Tebbit said this, he hoped that Martin McGuinness will be parked in a particularly hot and unpleasant corner of hell for the rest of eternity. Other people seem to have forgiven Martin McGuinness as he was accepted as uh, the, the second minister in the, the Northern Ireland uh, legislation, as he became mates with Ian Paisley, so much so that they became known as the Chuckle Brothers as they operated together. But Tebbit came out with this very harsh sentiment. It contrasted with the sentiments of Gordon Wilson, whose daughter Marie was killed in an IRA attack on a Remembrance Day parade in Enniskillen, again in the 80s. Gordon Wilson said, I bear no ill will, I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. I will pray for these men tonight and every night. Kurt Cochran was the American tourist killed at Westminster as he celebrated his silver wedding. His brother-in-law is quoted in the press as saying, our brother would want to forgive his killer. I wonder which set of sentiments do you most easily identify with? Is it the rot in hell? Or is it the I bear no ill will? Is it the I forgive? No, not which you think is right for a Christian. We know that Jesus instructed us to love our enemies, but which is most natural for you? In all honesty this morning, rot in hell or I bear no ill will. Some years ago, in 2002 in fact, I was involved in a national media campaign featuring the subject of forgiveness and the campaign poster declared, God knows it will take a miracle to forgive. And during that campaign, we highlighted examples of people who against all odds and human expectations were able to forgive in the most extreme of circumstances. So for example, we brought to the uh, UK Kim Phuc, the Vietnamese girl photographed running naked, flesh burning as a result of a napalm attack in the Vietnamese war. And her photograph became one of the iconic photos of the 60s. Yet as an adult, Kim forgave the pilot who dropped the deadly substance and speaks around the world on the issue of forgiveness. Subsequently, we featured G. Walker, mother of Liverpool teenager Anthony Walker, who was murdered at a bus stop with an ice axe. And G. Walker said, yes, she forgave her son's killers, and yes, her heart was still broken. Here's what she said. Unforgiveness makes you a victim. Why should I be a victim? 
Anthony spent his life forgiving. He was a teenage boy. Anthony spent his life forgiving. His life stood for peace, love, and forgiveness, and I brought him up that way. And I guess by highlighting these cases and others, we were demonstrating that God helps his followers to express the miracle of forgiveness. And to forgive in these circumstances is nothing short of miraculous. Alexander Pope famously said, to err is human, to forgive is divine. Forgiveness is not a natural human response to abuse, to atrocity, to pain, to rejection, to betrayal, but it's the expected response of the child of God, born of the Spirit. Conversely, unforgiveness has devastating implications. The implications of unforgiveness. Somebody said this, unforgiveness is the single most popular poison that the enemy uses against God's people, and it's one of the deadliest poisons a person can take spiritually. It causes everything from mental depression to health problems such as cancer and arthritis. And you can check that up multiple times on the internet, how people not coming from a Christian perspective are saying that unforgiveness actually causes us to be ill. In the Lord's Prayer, we find these words in the sort of King James Version, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. In other translations, it says something slightly but significantly different. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That sounds a little bit heavy. And immediately after teaching his disciples the prayer which we know as the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says to them, for if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. That is pretty alarming stuff. It's not the kind of stuff we usually look at. It's the kind of stuff we usually gloss over. And if we pray the Lord's Prayer, maybe we don't think too much about the implications of this. God's forgiveness of us is in some measure dependent on the extent to which we forgive others. In Mark's Gospel in chapter 11, Jesus says this, When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Do you see where this is going? Do you see the connections here? Do you see the way in which Jesus is suggesting that our forgiveness from God is actually in some sense dependent on our willingness to forgive other people? Now, we need to temper this with uh, 1 John 1, 9, which says quite categorically, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I'm so glad that verse is in the Bible. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. How do we square the circle? How do we put these things together? My conclusion is this, unforgiveness is a sin which we need to confess in order for God to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Many of us here have done the course 
uh, freedom in Christ. Give me a wave if you've done freedom in Christ and across the congregation, lots of us have. Course compiler Steve Goss draws attention to these verses from 2 Corinthians 2 and 10 and 11. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Why? In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. What is Paul implying there? We are not unaware of his schemes. We are not unaware of Satan's schemes. What dirty tricks is Satan up to? Steve Goss put it like this, nothing keeps you in bondage to the past more than an unwillingness to forgive. Nothing gives Satan greater opportunity to stop a church growing than roots of bitterness which are caused by personal unforgiveness. In other words, if we harbor unforgiveness, we give Satan a foothold in our life which he can manipulate to his advantage and to our personal detriment. Unforgiveness is a breeding ground for resentment. Here's the scenario. You are genuinely hurt by someone. You refuse to forgive that person. You resent that person. The word resent literally means this, to feel all over again. A feeling being, a feeling creature is a sentient creature. So to resent is to feel all over again. And if we hold resentment, we cause ourselves to feel the hurt all over again, the genuine hurt that we've experienced from another person. So as long as you resist forgiving the one who's offended against you, the more pain you put yourself through. But if you forgive, if you allow God's Spirit to enable you to forgive, God knows it takes a miracle to forgive, then you are set free from the self-destructing cancers of bitterness and resentment. Here's the paradox at the heart of forgiveness. Who is set free when somebody expresses forgiveness? Is it the offender or is it the forgiver? It's Jacob and Esau that Mark talked about before on the screen. Who's the one that's set free? Is it the offender or is it the forgiver? Our 2002 poster, God Knows It Takes a Miracle to Forgive, carried a quote from Corrie ten Boom, who was incarcerated by the Nazis for hiding Jews in Amsterdam. And she said this, Forgiveness is the key that unlocks the door of resentment and the handcuffs of hate. It is the power that breaks the chains of bitterness and the shackles of selfishness. It's worth reading that again in full, I think. Forgiveness is the key that unlocks the door of resentment and the handcuffs of hate. It's the power that breaks the chains of bitterness and the shackles of selfishness. So whereas our natural instinct, our human logic would suggest that if I forgive someone who's offended against me, then the other person is the beneficiary. On the contrary, the beneficiary is the one who does the forgiving. It's the one who does the forgiving who feels the freedom. It's the one who does the forgiving who feels the release. It's the one who does the forgiving who feels that he's no longer bound. And here's an amazing thing. The offender doesn't even need to be present or aware of what's going on for the process of forgiveness to be effective. Isn't that fantastic? 
Somebody spoke to me on the phone the other day about this particular issue. There was an issue in her life that had been sort of brought back to the surface. And when she told me the time gap, the time gap was, it was 2011. We talked about who was the person that she was holding responsible for the way in which she felt. And we concluded together that that person probably had no clue of what was going on, and she was able to exercise and express forgiveness and to set herself free from what was holding her trapped in those handcuffs, not of hate, but those handcuffs of hurt. The offender need not be present or aware for the process of forgiveness to be effective. Isn't that fantastic? And could it be that there's someone here this morning and you've been suffering the consequences of unforgiveness for years. While the person who hurt you has no idea, one, that they hurt you in the first place, two, that you hold something against them, and three, that you're suffering as a result of unforgiveness. Today, you can experience freedom, even before you leave the service. How good is that? Today could be the day of release, the day of freedom. But before we encourage you to do something that would allow that to happen, I want to talk for a moment or two about the logic of forgiveness. It's the story that Ave read to us, a parable of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus spoke in the context of Peter asking the question, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister if they offend against me? And Jesus' typical response to a question is to tell a story, a parable. And in praise, it goes like this, once upon a time. A king decided to settle his accounts with his servants. Each of them owed him money. The first owed him a large sum, 10,000 bags of gold, and the king demanded immediate payment in full. The only way the debt could be paid was for the man and his family to be sold as slaves. However, the debtor pleaded with the king for mercy, and amazingly, the king wiped clear the debt, and they all lived happily ever after. Actually, no! Can you believe it? The man whose huge debt had been cancelled bumps into a fellow servant who owes him a hundred silver coins, a paltry sum compared with the large amount, 10,000 bags of gold that he had owed, that he's had written off. And this man exhibits threatening behavior and demands his dues. And when the poor guy pleads mercy, he's thrown into the debtor's prison until he can pay his debts. I never quite got my head around this concept. How does anyone ever get out of the debtor's prison if they're thrown in until they can earn enough money to pay their debts? It doesn't add up for me, but that's the way it worked. Unfortunately for him, the man who was going to be thrown into the debtor's prison. The other servants cry, cry out, foul play. They report to the king what has happened. The king is angry and he lays it along the line with the first servant. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? It's plain logic. Because we've been forgiven. Logically, we should be quick to forgive other people. And because of his unforgiving attitude, he's not only thrown into the debtor's prison, but he's subjected to torture. 
Now, I've been taught over the years that we should be careful not to look for meaning in every line of a parable. Generally, a parable has one straightforward application, and for this one, it's very simple. You've been forgiven, so you in turn should forgive. However, a number of observers draw attention to the reference to torture. Apparently, torture wasn't usually administered in Jewish law, so why mention it here, it's argued, unless it's significant. Here is the argument. If we do not follow the logical process of forgiving because we are forgiven, we subject ourselves to mental, emotional, and spiritual torture. Perhaps you identify with that today. Perhaps you're experiencing such torture because of unforgiveness in your heart, and perhaps you've been experiencing it for years, and it's gnawing away at your inside. It's causing you lack of sleep. It's causing you lack of concentration. It's spoiling relationships that you might otherwise have. Verse 35, the last verse that Ave read says this. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And here really is the last point that I wanted to share this morning. Forgiveness must be heartfelt. Not mechanical and calculating, not mathematical like Peter. Jewish law required a person to forgive another three times. Peter thought he would demonstrate that his righteousness exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees by upping the ante to seven times. And Jesus raises the stakes not seven times, but 70 times seven. In other words, forgiveness knows no limit. It goes on and on and on. And yet in so doing, Jesus has taken it out of the mechanical. Forgiveness is not merely a formula or a formality. It's a way of life and in fact to be effective. It should be heartfelt. Forgiveness must be heartfelt. It mustn't be theatrical. I only saw the film Schindler's List once. Who remembers seeing the film Schindler's List? M many of us here. I, I only saw it once but there's one particular part of that that sticks in my mind and in my memory and I checked it out with some of these little YouTube clips the other day uh, and it's the Ralph Fiennes character who's the commandant in, in the Nazi prison camp who, who liked to stand on his balcony and shoot the prisoners one by one randomly at will and then Schindler the Liam Neeson character has a conversation with him and suggests to him that an alternate approach is to pardon people. And Ammon, the prison commandant, he suddenly grabs a hold of this. And bizarrely, he realizes that he has power of life and death over these people. And he can say to these people, I pardon you. I pardon you. I pardon you. The only difficulty with that was the words were theatrical. I pardon you. I pardon you. I pardon you, but it was theatrical. He got hold of a concept, but it was not heart fence felt. He realizes that forgiveness is a good idea, but it should not be theatrical. As in Schindler's List, I pardon you, I pardon you. Isn't this a jolly game to play? To be effective, forgiveness must be heart felt from the heart. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart.
I thought with the nature of the message today, it would be good to allow some time for us to respond to this and to, to respond to it in, in quite an overt way. And I'm going to invite the musicians just to come back and take their place at the moment while I explain the ways in which we can uh, respond to this. Uh, as Graham mentioned to us a, a little earlier, uh, Easter's coming. We didn't need him to tell us that. It is coming and it's coming fast. And on the, the Thursday, we're going to have the Passover meal. And uh, on the Friday, there's the opportunity to walk behind a cross around the, uh, the town. And we know that on the day we call Good Friday, we call it Good Friday because Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And here's two things that we could do this morning depending on what our situation is. If the Holy Spirit has been putting something on your heart today and helping you to see something about unforgiveness that is in your life, and somebody has hurt you in the past and you've been holding on to that, and that's been gnawing away at you, that's been torturing you possibly for years, then forgiveness, your forgiving that person can set you free today. I'm gonna to suggest a very simple mechanism for doing that. We've got a hammer and we've got some nails beside the wooden cross there. And I've asked permission and we're allowed to knock nails into that cross today. And if somebody has really, really hurt you and they possibly don't even know and you just want to get that out of your system and get that away, then I just want to invite you to take a nail and to take the hammer and to uh, Think of that person's name and say, in effect, I hand you over to Jesus. It's not my concern anymore. I hand you over to Jesus and I'm set free. The lady I spoke to on the phone the other day, uh, she texted me in the evening. She said, I've done it. I've let it go and I feel free. So there's an invitation if you're holding unforgiveness in your heart. And I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would draw to our attention uh, situations that we might find ourselves in. I found that a helpful exercise in the past. I, I nailed one or two people to the cross in my time. <laughs> Got them out of my system. Did discover along the way forgiveness is a crisis when we do that. But it's also a process. We might have to do it again, and maybe you think you've got somebody out of your system, some hurt out of your system, and you haven't yet put a nail in the cross while the musicians play. But then I thought, I put some nails over here, and uh, you know, Rosemary was talking a little bit earlier about uh, young people who'd been born again, got a brand new start on the Alpha course that's been going on. And it could be here this morning that uh, you're in the position of actually needing to be forgiven. And Jesus died on the cross so that we could be forgiven all of our sins and we could have a relationship with God. And if anyone confesses their sins, then God is just and righteous and will forgive you your sins. 
And as a sort of symbol, as a sort of sign, uh, as a, a means really physically that you would remember of seeking forgiveness from Jesus, from God our Heavenly Father for the things you have done which let him down, which upset him and which he longs to forgive you for. Would you just come and would you take a nail? Would you feel the sharp point? Would you remember the Christ in his death on the cross? carried the penalty for your sins. You don't need to carry them anymore. You don't need to carry that penalty anymore. You can be forgiven and you can be forgiven today. Stand together, shall we?